Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Hopefully you're all back in the swing of being at work and school here in January. We are in the throes of winter here and it's just lovely. I have a ice fishing trip with my dad coming up, a dog sled race to go to, and a whole bunch of whitefish I need to put in the smoker soon. So what a great time of year up here. In exciting program news, next week will be our first essay published from this cohort. That's right. Carolyn Ramirez writes about our troubled history with public lands and who feels safe on them. You can find that published on February 1st at ehn.org. Today I am talking to fellow Gabriel Gadsden, a PhD student of environmental sciences at Yale University School of the Environment. We talk about the fascinating intersection of rodent infestations and energy justice, how we can simultaneously tackle both, and how his golf game is going. Enjoy. All right. I am here with Gabriel Gadsden. Gabriel, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. It's uh, very exciting to, to be on the podcast. Um, obviously, we've gotten some time to hang out with each other and learn a little bit about each other. And so to, I don't know, bridge that conversation further is exciting. And hopefully, you know, people listen to it and, and take something away from our conversation today. Yes, hopefully people do listen to it. That's an important part of this. Uh, and, I, and I know that people will and are listening right now. So that's, that's good to know. And Gabriel, where are you today? Where are you talking to us from? I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, in the basement of Kroon <laughs> in my office. Uh, my advisor said that doesn't look like I live in it too much, <laughs> which I don't know is a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your take on, on academia, being a grad student. Um, Funny, or not even funny, but we just had a uh, our first snowstorm in New Haven, <laughs> but it's, it's already gone. Already gone. Came and went, hey? Yeah, already gone, indeed. <laughs> when our snow comes here, it doesn't leave till May, uh, so we just, keep, we just yeah. keep stacking it and stacking it on top of old snow, which I like. It is a good... It is a good thing for us to have that. So speaking of place, uh, if you've listened to the podcast, you know I like to go back to the beginning before we talk about the exciting stuff you're working on now. So tell me about Haiti. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The historically black community in Durham, North Carolina, where you grew up. Yeah, no. So Haiti, um, and, and don't feel bad because I, I feel like everybody gets it wrong when they first uh, read it. It does read like ha- uh, Haiti, but it is Haiti. Uh, it is the black section of, I would, I would say more like center southern Durham. Um, there's actually a Haiti Historic Center, which kind of documents both a, like a congregation space, but also a area um, that documents the history of, of, of that area. So it kind of runs between Fable Street and Highway 55. Uh, North Carolina Central is around there. A lot of uh, black businesses, the uh, North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company is kind of connected to the Haiti Center. Uh, a lot of uh, black elementary uh and middle schools, so Pearson Town, Fable Street Elementary Lab School, which I went to, Shepherd Middle School is around there. Uh, so a hub of you know black entrepreneurs and academia, 
educators kind of uh, in that area, uh, putting roots down. And that's where uh, a lot of my family grew up uh, in North Carolina. And I'm, I'm guessing that, hey, Ty, since you grew up there as a child, you don't know any any different, right? I mean, when you're a child, wherever you grow up, that's what you know. But what can you kind of piece together from growing up there? Maybe how it affected you now or in your youth? Uh, you know, but maybe not outside so much of hey, Ty. I in, in my family, I my dad was always big on you know understanding the history of where we're coming from, you know, ancestors and whatnot. Uh, understanding the history of Durham, that uh, he was there when he was a child while his uh, mother was in grad school at UNC in public health, while his dad was uh, in law school as well. Um, and so, you know, he got to see Durham and Haiti in a very different light. And so, you know, just kind of understanding that, uh, you know, by the time that I was being reared in North Carolina, North Carolina Mutual had, you know, closed down its doors. And so that's kind of, you know, you can see it in a lot of black or black areas of cities. You know, there's this really, you know, steep incline of entrepreneurship and whatnot. And then there's a decline, whatever reason, whether there's a highway being built, uh, you know, just kind of dis- disinvestment into an area. Um, it still had a lot of the the history and the roots uh, was still there, but it wasn't maybe as bustling as as it would have been in maybe the 50s, 60s. And where and how did science enter your life? Yeah, I, you know, I was most excited about this question. <laughs> uh, and I, I kind of mulled over it thinking about it. I think that for me, science was always a part of my trajectory as it was a part of my life. And so... Um, if uh, I'll say this, uh, growing up, I was diagnosed with a speech impediment that was in part because I couldn't hear and I still can't hear out of my right ear. Um, and so, you know, not being able to talk to kids and not really being able to hear anybody, I kind of stayed in my own head, uh, stayed to myself. But, you know, when you're wandering, you know, devoid of interaction with other kids, you find other things to interact with. And so my first thing was rocks, loved them, loved how they looked, um, clean them, you know, put them in buckets and, and had this rock collection. And so, you know, you know, first thing was geology for me. Um, and then I got a little bit older and then it became PBS. So I was watching Zoom and learning about chemistry. Didn't know it was chemistry at the time, um, but they were adding baking soda and sodium chloride and making gases. And so I would go to my parents' bathroom, probably wasted about $200 <laughs> worth of product throughout that time period. <laughs> Um, and I was mixing Vitalis and Listerine and alcohol and hoping that I was going to make a discovery of some new chemical, some new gas. Um, my mom had a bachelor's degree from North Carolina Central University. That was her first degree from there. And, you know, she said to me, don't mix ammonia and bleach. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, know, she saw what I was doing, but, you know, they just kind of let me stay off to myself. Uh, after that, it was Zumbumafu. And, you know, I, I won't sing the catchphrase, but, you know, you know, who do you see? Can you, you know, identify this mystery? What was this animal? Um, and, and loved Animal Planet, Top 10 Dangerous, and all of these other shows just really captivated me when I was younger. And so, you know, taking that into the classroom, just being generally curious, not really having the foundations. And I think we'll get into that a little bit more, but, uh, and the last thing I'll say and why I say that science was just kind of always a part of me was that I grew up and, and still am 
religious. And so, and, you know, it, Christianity was, is, is my religion that I identify with, but, you know, whether it's Judaism, Buddhism, um, Muslim, you will find environmentalism, ecology in, in the roots of them. And that's something that I've kind of come back to now here at Yale School of the Environment. A lot of connections with the Div School, the, the, the Divinity School, and recognizing these similarities and recognizing that our morality is tied to the environment. And obviously with traditional ecological knowledge, TEK, I think kind of making a resurgence in people's psyche and the paradigm shift that we need to really get back to, you know, quote unquote roots um, is something that I've, I've always carried with me. There's tons of verses in the Bible that, you know, a lot more knowledgeable people could sprout off in, in terms of, you know, connecting those two. And so I was filled with wonder when I was a kid and it carried me to here. Excellent. And you just alluded to this. You said your, uh, and I remember this in your application, you mentioned your, your primary education left you uh, woefully unprepared to conduct research, which I don't think is an uncommon thing. I know I hadn't seen a scientific paper until graduate school. I, I didn't know what they were. So I don't think you're alone, but can you talk about this obstacle and how you overcame it to go on to right now, one of the most prestigious universities in the country? Absolutely. I, I'll start with this. I don't want that statement, you know, people hear it to say that I had bad instructors or teachers. Um, my elementary school time was filled, filled with amazing educators. I, you know, I could name them and most, some of them are still friends with me, with me now. Um, these were incredible people. Uh, but when it came to specials, we had, com- you know, computer PE art music. There was no science special. <laughs> um, it was, there was one teacher at the school, Fable Street Elementary Lab School at the time, Mrs. Daniels, who had a classroom filled with animals. And that was probably the closest thing we got to true science education at that time. Uh, and I went, went to middle school. And so obviously I've been watching these shows and asking my own questions, reading my own books. Uh, but it's just another step up. Now you're just learning about tectonic plates and, and genial, uh, geology, you know, kind of time periods and whatnot, uh, you know, the Paleocene or Jurassic, you know, Jurassic kind of understanding that. Uh, but that's stuff that I had already read. It, it wasn't fascinating to me. I mean, it was nice to be able to raise my hand and know the, know the question that kind of kept my, my interest into science, but we weren't learning the scientific method. We weren't looking at two different species and asking why is this one different and uh, whether or not we could change in the laboratory. We weren't getting any kind of hands-on experience. Same thing in in high school. Um, I I didn't see science shown to a younger audience until I was a a TA, teaching assistant for Duke TIP, which is a talent program run by Duke University. And, you know, there I saw, you know, true scientific method building, trying things, failing, going back, you know, iterative process. That's kind of part of the part of the science experiments that you see in laboratories. Um, You know, went to a high school called Josephine Dobbs Clement Early College. And so I did get some early science classroom experience before going off to to then UNC. But when I got there, you know, understanding how to navigate those classrooms, uh, but also recognizing that there was a world outside of chemistry and biology, which just was not something that clicked to me. Uh, I think about it now, and I probably should should have been an environmental science major, 
I think I would have had an easier time. You know, it wasn't until sophomore year that I realized that I was taking classes that were for pre-med doctors, you know, doctors. And that's not what I wanted to do. I knew that, you know, going in, but I didn't know of other majors. And so it's kind of a a multi-tier thing, both from the kind of primary education, getting students prepped for the many fields that are going to be available to you as a, as a college student, but also colleges recognizing that. And, you know, I've seen, I have some friends now who are, are in like STEM education uh, at the kind of academic level and are trying to write papers and try to understand what, what fails when they, you know, make that jump from high school to college. Uh, I think that there's some really good progress going on, but I think it's kind of a, a, a twofold issue. One, uh, a lot of the primary education, particularly in black communities, don't have the money to, to bring in science uh, instructors to do specials or science Fridays and stuff like that. But then, two, when you get to the university level, universities just aren't understanding that students are coming in at very different standpoints. Um, they might have very different interests and you know, maybe only think that biology is the only way to get into science, which isn't the case. It's a great point. And, and I like to think that this program not only is the point is to show that scientists themselves are from diverse backgrounds and can be diverse people, but also that science itself is diverse. I, I think I grew up thinking that science maybe I think you were saying this kind of too. I thought of chemists, chemistry, beakers and, uh, you know, the lab experience, experiments and didn't think of social scientists or um you know, even forestry and fisheries to a certain extent were things that I think if I would have been exposed to at a younger age, I would have said, oh, my goodness, yes, I want to do that. that that's excellent. Um, so, yeah, no, those are excellent points. And I hope I hope some of this program is 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 opening people's eyes to different types of cool science. So before we get into that cool science that you are doing right now, what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity? So from, from a science standpoint, uh, when I was an intern with the Applied Wildlife Ecology Lab uh, with Dr. Harris, I am Harris at the University of Michigan, at the time was the first time going and doing uh, kind of forested wildlife ecology field work. And I remember going into the forest and, you know, kind of seeing the light beams and hot and sweaty and had just climbed a hill and gone through the thicket and I kind of emerged into this field and felt a, a spiritual connection a birthing, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was truly a, a moment of, of great pleasure for me to, to knowing that I had finally done that. And what I felt like my, my life was supposed to be like, was going out and collecting data and trying to then come back and share that data with, with people. Um, from a more personal standpoint, uh, maybe, man, my parents would, would have a different story. I know the story my dad would tell, for me, it was maybe a, a, a devotional. I was actually uh, dedicated to God when I was seven. Um, and I felt like I was always a good kid. I felt like I always had this connection. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, but for me, it was this recognition that I'm a um, humbling experience to know that I'm just a small dot. In, in, in this in this great big world and a lot of it that we don't understand and that we have faith in it um we have faith in science right that you know we'll, we'll learn some of our answers and we have faith in our religions um we have faith in humanity and our people i think that was a moment you know being very young and actually just realizing that i'm just a a a, a, a dot in this you know kind of vastness but i could make a difference clearly people felt like i was making a difference in their lives within that 
that congregation. And so I think kind of, oh, I can make a difference in this world uh, in whatever capacity I am. I've tried to carry that with me. Excellent. That's an excellent, uh, excellent couple of moments. And let's get into some of the research you're doing now um, in, in making that difference. And so uh, I've had the good fortune to to not only talk to you when you applied for this program, but we met in Philadelphia and talked about your research. So some of this I know, but some I don't. And I find it fascinating. So as you put it, it's kind of at the intersection of human health, wildlife, and energy justice. So can you just off the top, tell us how these three fields merge in your research? How, how does it merge? Um, it started when I was back being an intern and walking through the forest with, uh, with my, uh, my advisor, Dr. Harrison, starting to ask questions about society and, and how all this, what it, what it really meant when it boiled down to it. Uh, again, my dad and mom and instilled in me, you know, we need to stand up for what we think is right, what, you know, being just and, and being fair and morality. Um, science was the path that I was taking. It wasn't like I was going to go to law school, though my dad might still think that's <laughs> a possibility. <laughs> um, and the questions in ecology just weren't there. Uh, at that time, I don't think ecology, this was, you know, back in 2016, 17, I don't think that they had really kind of saw, saw that ecology could really be tied to, to social justice or, or social equity. Um, and at that point, uh, really grateful that Dr. Harris kind of saw that and wants people to be great. I was just like, well, you should probably go into environmental science. Um, had a friend, Dr. Tony Reams, uh, who was at the time taking on students who does energy justice work. Um, and I kind of made that pivot and knew at the time that it was a, a hard pivot, uh, <laughs> but it worked out, uh, and I just had a text message kind of chat with Tony and just, you know, still believes in me, still thinks that the ideas are great and going to continue to do good things. But there I was able to actually collect data that was directly tied or more visceral for people uh, doing air quality data and efficient housing. And so uh, environmental justice is, you know, public health, public health is epidemiology and, you know, all, all these things kind of merge and mix together. And so recognizing that people were living in inefficient housing and then had bad health, having this background in ecology with wildlife and, you know, how a story goes, I was reading uh, energy justice papers and I was reading wildlife papers and I thought to myself, oh, foxes and, and other things like raccoons and bats live in people's homes. How do they get into those homes though? And then, you know, I, you know, the literature, you know, they talk about these gaps in the foundation and inefficient, you know, walls. And so there's no insulation. So it becomes a basically just a nesting place for the, for wildlife. And I thought, Oh, wow, this is, it's pretty interesting. And, you know, lo and behold, there wasn't a lot of data on it. Um, you know, now I can certainly <clears throat> talk more about the, the literature that is there. Um, but at the time and, and still, Still, to a large degree, there is not any hard data about you know housing quality and wildlife and health, and putting those two together. Even though you know wildlife they carry uh, zoonotic diseases that can be you know obviously transmissible to humans uh, that make us sick, and so you know it kind of becomes this double jeopardy of if you have wildlife that are in your house carrying diseases and you're already in poorer health because of your inefficient housing, uh, what that could mean for. You know, public health crises and you know 
kind of being cost effective. If there's a solution to multiple things, we should probably champion that solution. Uh, and I have to thank Dr. Grove for that. Uh, as an urban ecology um, <clears throat> class that I just uh, was a teaching fellow for, you know, understanding this complex nature of problems. And if we don't think complex, you know, that they are complex problems and there's multiple you know, ways of entering the, the issue, then we're not going to get very far. And just on the on the ground level, what does this research look like? How do you conduct a, conduct a study that examines both energy inefficiency and rodents? Yeah, so <laughs> as a first year, as a then last year, first year PhD student or someone trying to get into grad school, I thought I was going to save the world in, in a day. I knew it wasn't <laughs> realistic, but you know, it, we have uh, unlimited supply <laughs> of, of wonder, right? Um, I thought I was going to talk to some people in, in Philadelphia. They were going to let me into the house. We were going to get all this money and do uh, home energy scores, HESs, and then we were going to trap inside, and then we were going to retrofit with another $15,000 and then do a before and after a control trial. None of that happened. <laughs> One didn't happen yet. Um, we, we we're still optimistic that some of those things will happen in time and hopefully – you know, the funders who are listening to this will recognize the importance of this work. <laughs> um, but the reality is, is that we're starting outside. Uh, you know, so my field site is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, uh, while they do have a vector control, has not uh, kind of systematically kept ties with, you know, what the pathogens are and really where the uh, where the rodents are in the city outside of 311 calls. And so hopefully working with them to get them just kind of more data where the rodents in the city, I think is kind of the first question and what environmental variables, you know, both, you know, trash receptacles, park size, you know, trash on the street, housing, type of housing, housing stock um, is attributing, you know, rodent populations or is increasing or decreasing rodent populations. Excuse me. I think that so that's the first step. And then the second step is to then, you know, as we're in these neighborhoods collecting rodents, making contacts, um, hopefully we have a, I have a meeting tomorrow with block uh, 57 blocks, which is uh, a gun violence advocacy kind of research group out at the DA's office in Philadelphia, recognizing that some of these uh, issues with what is attracting rodents in cities actually kind of also uh, could mitigate or, or increase gun violence. And so... I, I say that to say you you work with people who are already doing great work in the city on different issues, uh, Philly Thrive and um, other folks that are doing EJ work. And hopefully by those connections and those collaborations, then they you know will say, oh, yes, this person it will, would, would love to talk to you about this research. And that's how we're going to get into homes. So to zoom out, we're, we're talking about cracks in the foundation or problems in the home that are uh, first, leading to energy inefficiency. So maybe your bills are higher, your house isn't as warm, your house isn't as cool. And then the second part of that is rodents are able to get in. And what kind of diseases or health problems can are, are we talking about when we think about rodents getting into people's homes? So first is childhood asthma, um, allergens that are already so, you know, if you're in a low income area, you likely maybe have a uh, uh, some type of power plant or some type of industry that's near you. So you already have those pollutants getting into your home more because it's uh, inefficient uh, or for whatever reason, you, you have higher rates of asthma. And now you add on allergen load um, from mice and, ro- uh, and rats. So you're, you're, that's going to be exacerbated. So, you know, more 
ER trips, uh, more money spent on inhalers and other types of, of treatments. There's also the issue of leptospirosis, which uh, and hantavirus that's you know more in the West right now. Um, and I'm not going to get into kind of the funding debacles of, of funding that research in cities or in other areas outside of the West. But but certainly those are kind of the two main ones. There's also uh, typhus, plague is still in these rodents. And I have to imagine that there's a mental health stress component to this. There's social uh, there, there's social stress. I mean, the idea maybe you don't want to invite people into your home when you know you have an infestation. So I can see this kind of spider webbing outside of the very acute uh, physical physical illnesses into mental and social struggles. So I don't want to place blame here, and I know this is probably a, a, a large issue with some historical roots. Um, but who's to blame? What is the mm-hmm. what historic? Why has this historically been a blind spot um, for regulators, housing officials, and others? Nineteen um, fifties was a really uh, big time. Uh, I don't know the researcher's first name, but Davies, I believe is his last name. Did a lot of work in Baltimore. Um, there's a lot of really great case studies in Budapest and some other cities that have like kind of rat proof towns um, and brought population levels of, of rats down to, you know, less than 1% of their historic numbers. Uh, even in Philadelphia in 19, in the 1940s, they had their first really big campaign about getting rid of rodents. And then in the 1960s, uh, the mayor kind of created the rat control group. And that rat control group, you know, said, you know, that we will not take a job if you do not seal up all the cracks in, in, you know, in your home, you know, essentially, you know, back then, maybe they didn't think about it as energy efficiency of sealing up your envelope and the energy scholars will, you know, get that, but it makes sense. Um, But life happens, policy change, uh, you know, turnover, uh, it's a lot easier to say, uh, you know, put out bait blocks and, and rodent trapping than to actually do systemic change. We, we see that time and time. And again, uh, actually solving an issue takes uh, coordinated efforts between many different factors from public health to housing and development to parks and rec all coming together at that table um, and cities are not willing to to make that make that choice. At least in the, in America right now, uh, major cities. Uh, you know, I'm not going to bash on any politician, but if you follow New York politics, you would have seen like a rat czar uh, job posting recently. And the reality is, you know, all the memes were, you know, Charlie Day from Always Sunny Philadelphia, kind of with, with this kind of mace bat like situation that's going to go and you know get rid of all the rodents, and that's not going to work. You know, it's and it's not just sanitation. It's not just sealing up the home, and it's not just getting rid of vacant lots. It's all of those things at once, uh, across a large scale in a city. And so, until we're ready to put up that money, um, allow natural predators into our cities and and kind of coexist with with nature in a, in a healthy way, then I don't think that you know. <clears throat> so you know, really, really comes down to it is, is political will and and resource allocation. Um, I mean, most most researchers will, will say, you know, that's a lot, a lot of the issues and you throw money at enough, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll fix itself and you get get the right people in the room. But right now we just uh, there's really great researchers. Um, Jason Munchie. Uh, I'm drawing a blank, but even Marie and Rosenbaum, these are uh, people who are doing research right now. Uh, 
and certainly know more than I do, but I think we'll would advocate the same thing that is a, you know, you have to have this team of teams um, to quote Dr. Grove, Morgan Grove. If, you know, if you don't have this team of teams, you're not going to <laughs> solve the issue. And so cities have to really be ready to sit down and bring people together and spend the money. Uh, what makes you hopeful about this? You mentioned some researchers who are doing very good work. Um, are you seeing any on the ground movement in Philadelphia or beyond? What what makes you hopeful and optimistic? Yeah, um, I mean, Matt Fryer, uh, another researcher, uh, just kind of created like this uh, really handy, simple rodent tool that you can kind of put into cracks and understand whether, you know, it is susceptible to being infested by rodents. And so you have this, you know, researcher entrepreneurship uh, kind of burgeoning space. You also have uh, new sensors with RATMO. There's different technologies that are, you know, trying to get at, you know, making sure that we spend money in a efficient manner. Uh, as much as I don't think the idea of a rat SAR is going to work, the fact that, <laughs> that 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 is a possibility that, you know, maybe the right person that's in that position could really make a change if they're kind of advocating for all of these different methods and, you know, allocating funds in, in the right spaces. Uh, I also think that there's maybe a little bit of a, change in public perception. I, I kind of write in you know, essay that I'm working on, you know, environmental health news with you and, and, and Maria that, you know, it's time that people stop accepting this as the normal. And I, I'm seeing that more and more, maybe that's because I'm in this space, but I certainly think that uh, as it, it gets out of hand again, I think COVID-19 and this kind of increase in rodent sightings, people at home and recognizing that, you know, they're out during the daytime, they're out during the nighttime, they're, you know, that uh, the squeaky wheel is going to get squeakier. And so I, I think I'm seeing a little bit more of that. I certainly know all of my friends know about it more. And so they send me a lot of papers and different articles from different fields kind of hinting at this as well. And so I think, the, the uh, you know, that, that does make me optimistic. You know, I certainly have gotten some great responses for my work. And, and so recognizing that people see this as a, as a serious issue, uh, I think it, you know, will only get uh, easier to advocate for, you know, true rodent exclusion or, you know, reduction of populations in an in a impactful way. Yeah. Sometimes a big first step for any of these kind of wicked issues is just awareness. Um, it's a good, it's a good first step. And speaking of that, so I, I know after I talked to you about your research, uh, it, it seemed very intuitive um, that these problems would be linked, but it is different and intersectional. And I'm sure you've had to explain it to folks. So I'm wondering if you just have any tips for scientists interested in learning to better communicate. Mm. <laughs> After just giving uh, two presentations, two final presentations, uh, practice, I, sh I should have practiced more. And, and everybody in my lab would say practice, you know, um, giving a talk to very different fields also helps, you know, most people don't study rodents, <laughs> particularly in ecology, or, or at least, you know, ur urban ecology or urban rodents because they're not considered wildlife. And so you, you have to talk to the epidemiologists who are in a very public health atmosphere or, or medical research. And so you have to, to link these things, even this idea of, you know, 
retrofitting versus, you know, sealing up the envelope, what words you use, those, those choice words, uh, getting rid of the jargon, you know, paring it down, writing different grants and then writing research talks and then writing an academic, you know, an academic article about it. You know, you're putting it in very different ways and you find out what works and what clicks with people. Um, so yeah, just keep harping on it. If you believe in it, you know, it, the right words are going to come and, you know, it, you know, the same thing as reading widely, talk to as many different groups uh, because they, you know, someone in social science may say this is a word that would really click with people. So, you know. I also think starting off as you, as I've heard you do with just kind of how this affects people is, is a very tangible way to make these to make these issues click with people. I mean, we've all, most of us, I had a mouse in the house the other day. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a common, this is a common thing that uh, a lot of people have dealt with, maybe not on the scale that you're researching, but I think starting with how does this impact people and their health is a really good starting point. And I've seen you do that. So of course you can't be out there chasing rodents and uh, looking at foundations all of the time. I happen to know you're a golfer. So what is, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's golf weather out there, if you're getting a bunch of snow, but when you are able to golf, do you get out much? And what's your handicap these days? I do get out. I get out as much as I can. Um, Yale's really generous and allows uh, students to play at a discounted rate um, after certain hours. And so I, I'll go over there. It's a great golf course. Um, and handicap, you know, I'll say this, there's no pictures on a scorecard <laughs> and that can work in a good way or a bad way. <laughs> uh, I, 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 what I'll say is that I can get some pars. Most of the time I'm shooting bogey every now and again, I'll get a double bogey and a triple bogey more often than I'd like. Um, but if I were doing like a two man scramble, I wouldn't hold you down as, as bad as you would think. <laughs> Before we get you out of here today, I have three rapid fire questions that are supposed to be fun. Hopefully they are fun where you can just answer with one word or a phrase. So the first one is, what was the highlight of the past year for you? Was able to go to, uh, that's highlight, ah, seeing my family, you know, I don't get to see them often. And, and so any spending any time with my dad and playing golf with my brother, uh, it's always a treat seeing my nieces and my nephews. It's, it's always fun being with them. For sure. The best concert I've ever been to was? Ooh, two. So Mick Jenkins. Uh, not maybe a conscious rapper, but a little bit less conscious. Uh, really fun and authentic feeling. And then Jadena, uh, the 85 to Africa tour was really great i'm I'm a small concert like uh i'm a huge i I love going to concerts i like going to the smaller ones i don't think i'll ever go see beyonce or drake no offense to them um but the you know thirty thousand people doesn't it doesn't seem (laughs) (laughs) that makes that makes two of us this the the more intimate concerts are well they're more intimate you get to you get to see and feel things in a much different way i totally agree and last question every day i look forward to blank being a good person, uh, trying to be a genuine and, and caring person, uh, I think sometimes can throw people off. <laughs> like, what's up with this guy? But I, I hope that I hope that people who know me and or you know who will meet me know this is it, I just as genuine as I can can be. Is trying to just be be nice. 
Boy, I sure hope being kind doesn't spark too much skepticism among people <laughs> in your life or beyond, because uh, it's uh, it's something I felt from you, and uh, and and I think it's a it's a good thing. We should all be kind and genuine. So, last question I've been asking everybody: What is the last book that you read for fun? Whew. Last book I read for fun. I have to, I pulled them up so I wouldn't butcher their names. So the one that I actually just finished was The AIDS Disaster, The Failure of Organizations in New York and the Nation. Great book. Um, quite old at this point. 1990 was published, but uh, still is very salient, particularly because of the COVID-19, uh, the climate disaster. I mean, you name it, there's a a lack of, of coordination and whatnot. So yeah, go go get that. Um, and that was like a free book laying around that I just picked up from uh, the EB department. And then the other book is Fighting the Good Fight, um, the Militarization of the Civil Rights Movement. And so I'm currently reading that. And I've had some really good conversations because there's something to be said about whether or not we should be using this language. Is it helpful? Is it actually more harmful because of, you know, traumatic kind of uh, imagery that comes with militarization? Um I'm still debating that myself, but I certainly find it a, a thought-provoking book, if not a bit uh, challenging for, for some to kind of wrap their heads around. And so I've been asking people, you know, that's my, my question now at, at talks. Hey, should we be using this language? Is it helpful to take that militarization of civil rights to the militarization of climate justice um, and whether or not these campaigns and uh, precision and training and communications, those types of uh things that make campaigns go well should be co-opted. Excellent. Sounds like a thought-provoking book. And speaking of thought-provoking, you can find Gabriel's essay soon out on ehn.org where you can learn more about his research. And we'll be sure to get that in front of readers and listeners. Gabriel, thank you so much for doing this today. It's a pleasure having you in the program. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And thank you, everybody who's listening. That is a wrap for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gabriel. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit us at agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And please rate, review, subscribe, all those things that people do. Tell your friends about it. We would love to have more of you join us here every two weeks. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sun by Pottington Bear. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter at the program homepage. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to fellow Marissa Chan, a PhD student in population health sciences in the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Have a great week, folks. 